Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Friends, this morning we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in for the past several weeks uh, in Paul's letter to the Galatians. This is a a letter that Paul is writing uh, to a church that he had founded about three years prior and for which he had grown increasingly concerned because as he had announced uh, and planted this church on the basis of God's grace freely given to them in the gospel, uh, after he had left and moved on to other churches, some other teachers came in behind him uh, that sought to not only discredit his message, but what he, uh, they came to preach what he called another gospel, uh, another message, which he says is no gospel at all. It's not, uh, we said last week, it was neither good nor news, uh, so it did not qualify as a gospel. And so uh, we continue today in uh, Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. If you're willing and able, would you stand with us as we read God's word? Our reading today is Galatians 1, 11 through 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. All right. Thanks, Kate. You guys can be seated. We're at a section of Galatians where Paul, uh, as he does in several points in his letters, brings his own story, uh, his own autobiography uh, into his letter as a piece of helping uh, his audience understand the power of the gospel uh, to totally change and redirect a human life. His story is one of the great uh, stories of conversion, of a life headed one way and then turned to go a completely different way uh, that we have anywhere in the scriptures or uh, probably in human history. As we start today, I want to give you two hypothetical scenarios that I want you to imagine with me. Uh, first person we're going to talk about is I want to talk to you about Linda that you work with. You know, Linda in HR. 
Uh, here's Linda's problem and why nobody at work really likes Linda. Uh, Linda is one of those kinds of people who cannot help but tell you her opinion about everything, whether you ask for it or not. Linda is going to tell you what she thinks about the job you're doing, what she thinks about the clothes you're wearing, what she thinks about your pictures, all of it. Linda. Linda's the kind of coworker who microwaves day-old fried fish sticks for lunch in the break room. And when you go up to talk to Linda about her odiferous lunch uh, plans, she says, uh-uh, you do you, I'm going to do me, stay out of my lunch plans. When you press Linda for some more justification, she says, listen, Linda's going to be Linda. Walk it back to your office. Linda. A second scenario, uh, a bit more serious. A friend who you've known for years uh, comes to you and tells you uh, that though he was born biologically male, uh, he's come to a point where he no longer uh, feels at home in his own body. Uh, he's felt this his entire life, and he's decided to go ahead uh, with gender reassignment surgery. And in that moment, face-to-face -face with your friend, you feel this enormous move within you that what's desired and what seems the only decent thing to do uh, is to embrace and to affirm this person, uh, to move out of the conversation any concerns you might have for their health, uh, for what's going on in their mind, their heart, their morality. The move is, what the pressure you feel is to affirm this decision that your friend has made. Now, uh, on one level, these examples couldn't be more different. One is humorous and just merely annoying. Uh, the other has such a profound weight to it. Uh, such a person is obviously worthy of our deepest empathy and love and understanding. And yet both of these scenarios revolve around uh, what many philosophers have come to call the age of authenticity. They've described the world that we live in as one that's governed by the ethic of authenticity. The ethic, the ethic of authenticity uh, simply says this, that what matters most about any individual human life is that you live authentically to who you are on the inside, that what's on the inside of you makes it to the outside of you, that your life is ordered by your own deepest sense of identity and desire, uh, and that no other person, institution, religion, nothing else has the authority to press on you its demands. It's the ethic of authenticity. It's so much wired into the way that we do life that we can scarcely imagine life without it, right? Some of you, when I narrate that, just go, yeah, that's, that is the way that we live our lives. And yet it wasn't always this way. In fact, for most of human history, people grabbed their identity uh, from different sources. Your identity was more shaped by the community that you were born into, the family that you were born into, the religion you were born into, perhaps the vocation that you inherited from your parents. The idea wasn't that identity was constructed by the individual, but that identity was inherited from outside of yourself, from these cultural ties, right? That's, that was much closer to Paul's world, right? When you hear him narrate his story, he talks about having advanced in the culture of Judaism, right? The religious practices, the cultural models that were given to him by his community, that he was moving up in that. Paul didn't have a moment where he, where he woke up and thought to himself, who do I want to be? Maybe I want to be a dancer. No, he grew up in a world that said, no, no, you've grown into this family. This is your job. This is your path. This is who you are. It was inherited 
by his culture. And we're going to see that the gospel actually challenges both of those means of building your identity. That your identity is not merely to be inherited by your culture, but also that it's not something that we're just left onto ourselves to make up as we go along. Now, how did we get here? We're going to do a brief bit of intellectual history. I promise not to hopefully overly bore you. Um, But a lot of people trace this move that we've made culturally towards identity formation uh, to the thought of a group of German philosophers in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, The leading one was a man named Johann Herder. Now, Herder uh, was the first person uh, in the Western world to advance the idea that there was no single human culture that was better than other human cultures. So the idea was, right, that uh, think about what life was like in the 17th and 18th century, right? The European powers were in a race to colonize the entire world. Uh, They had no trouble going into other cultures and saying, no, 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 our culture has more insight, more education, more wealth, more power. So it's our job as a European person to impose our culture on these other cultures, right? Our own, cult, our own history as a nation is scarcely understandable uh, without that basic idea. Think about our westward expansion. Think about all of those things that have shaped uh, American life and culture. And so Herder comes along and says, no, no, it's not that one culture is better or worse than another. Each culture has its own gifts. Each culture has its own uh, uh, things to bring to the world, and so what we're to do is to represent, to uh, to appreciate the various cultures of this world. As you might guess, uh, in the European world of the 18th and 19th century, these ideas took some time to catch on, uh, but eventually they did, uh, and it wasn't a long path from that, from saying that no culture has the right to judge any other culture or to impose itself on any other culture, that the Romantic movement bloomed, which said no person has the right to impose himself or herself on any other person. That it's up to each person to figure out what they're called to be, who they're made to be, where their deepest desires lie. So next time Linda microwaves her fish, you can tell her that she stands on the foundations laid by 19th century German philosopher Johann Herder. When she says, Linda, gonna do Linda, she's building on a foundation that says nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me who I am. And on one hand, of course, that is a great gift. Uh, on one hand, we are better off for the realization that, there's, that, that, it's, that there is something left to each one of us about choosing our vocation and our path through life. But if you step back and look at it, it does leave us just totally lost in individualism. Right? Totally lost where it's up to us to assert who we are, oftentimes asserting who we are and our demands and our rights over and against others, utterly left to ourselves. And so Christianity comes into a world uh, marked by this ethic of authenticity with an entirely countercultural message, a strange and even offensive message that says, no, no, you have to be converted. Uh, There's something in you that has to die so that you can really live. There's something in you that if you follow your heart, if you live to your authentic expression of your best self, there's something that's going to kill you in that. There's something in the self, Jesus says, that has to die in order for you to truly live. That message sounds like crazy talk. It sounded like crazy talk back then, and I think it especially sounds like crazy talk uh, today. To go to your friends and say, good news, I've got good news for you. 
your life is utterly on the wrong track. You're following your own path to authenticity, to your own doom. You need to repent, die in order to live. And so do I. And so do we. Paul's, of course, is this classic conversion story. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9. He tells us the basic gist of it here is that Paul was, uh, having grown up in Judaism, having grown up in this cultural and religious world, he had given himself not only to opposing uh, the beginnings of the Christian movement, but was actually traveling around seeking to persecute, arrest, and even murder or execute uh, practitioners of the Christian way. He believed Jesus to have been a false messiah whose followers were deserving of death. And as he was riding uh, to Damascus to carry out uh, this murderous vision, he was confronted by the living Jesus. We're told that Jesus appeared to him shining. He knocked him off of his high horse, literally. He falls down, he goes blind, he can't see. And it's this picture of a man who loses his sight in order to gain it again. A man who loses his sight as a way uh, of telling us that everything he thought he saw so clearly and rightly, he saw poorly, he saw wrongly. And that for him to live the life that God had called him to, in order for him to live a life following Jesus, he needed to recognize his blindness and learn how to see, to learn how to see the world rightly. Now, Christians uh, throughout history and around the world have reiterated this story. That in order to live a life that we're called to live, we have to undergo a kind of conversion, a kind of turning around of our lives. Now, Christian traditions have varied on what that conversion looks like. Modern evangelicals have often seized on this kind of dramatic one-time conversion story like Paul's, right? Where your life is, your eyes are opened, you turn around, you see things clearly, and you change in an instant. You walk an aisle, you pray a prayer. And that is some of our experience. Some of you in this room have had experiences like that. Other traditions and other people talk about conversion as a lifelong process of turning away from sin and self and turning to Christ. Right, Benedict, uh, the inventor, uh, or essentially the founder of Western monasticism, talked about the conversion of life as the lifelong project of the Christian life. But whatever your tradition, whatever stream you come from, Christians universally have said that to follow Jesus means a change of trajectory. It means a conversion of heart and a change of life. It means, like Paul, that we have to be open to realizing that we thought we saw things clearly, but we haven't seen rightly at all. In receiving new eyes to see the world and ourselves in a new way. And so we want to talk today about that new vision the new vision that Jesus gives to Paul and that he offers to each one of us. The first thing uh, that Paul receives and that we have to receive is a new vision of God, a new vision of what God is like and who he is. The way that Paul starts here, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's later going to talk about how God was pleased to reveal his son Jesus to him. So what Paul was going through, what Paul had to see here was that God was fundamentally different than he had assumed God to be. Right on the one level, you could not get more uh, offensive to a first century Jew than to tell him that God was not a simple one, but was three. 
right? That God was not merely Yahweh, but that God was Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons living within one being. And yet he has Jesus revealed to him, not merely as a failed Messiah, nor even as a true but merely human Messiah, but as uh, the living God himself. God reveals his son, Jesus Christ. You know, on one level, we have to recognize the absolute impossibility that any of us will truly convert. Right, especially in our, in our world where we're told that what matters most is that we continue to run on the path of our own choosing. Right, in that world, it does seem utterly impossible that anyone would go, no, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uproot and change the entire trajectory of my life. And biblically, it's true that we never really will abandon our ways of life, our commitment to ourselves, until we receive a vision that is more compelling and more beautiful, that draws us to it more than we're drawn to our own ways. Right? You won't wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I've been on the wrong track all along. I should change. No, what happens is we come to see something. We come to see someone that seems more compelling and more beautiful and more loving and more life-giving than our addictions, than our path, than our sin, than ourselves. That we have to see Jesus before we ever make any kinds of change in our lives. Paul had to be confronted with the idea that God was utterly different than he imagined him to be. We can imagine what Paul thought God was like, right? What must be someone's idea of God if they give their entire life to murdering people, uh, to persecuting and extinguishing people who hold different views about that God and what he wants? Right, Paul's God, the God of the Pharisees, the God that, uh, that Jesus was often in his earthly ministry seeking to correct the Pharisees' understanding of, was that God was a righteous judge, and what mattered most and what he called Paul to was keeping people pure. Right, that what mattered most was that Paul take it onto himself to protect the honor and purity of this God's religion. And so Paul lived his entire life out of that vision of what God was like and what God wanted. And he was good at it. He was zealous about it. He was committed to it. Paul tells us he was better than the other people his own age at it. And yet when he meets Jesus, he meets a different idea of who God is. That in Jesus, God reveals himself to be the kind of God who pours himself out in love and mercy for his people. Even at the expense of the life of his son, that he is a God who, who is so committed to reaching his people, so un in need, un, un in need of uh, being protected and kept pure, that he entered, entered into the very filth of our human condition in order to pursue us in the midst of it that he might win us to himself. He's a God who Paul will go on to say in Romans, Paul says, do you not know that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? Right, that it's God's love and his mercy that provokes that repentance, that turning around, that change of mind that is conversion. God doesn't motivate us to it by fear or threat, but he woos us to it through his kindness and his mercy and his love. I love the story of Zacchaeus uh, in the New Testament. The Gospel of Luke tells us Zacchaeus' story. Right? There may not be a more dramatic uh, conversion uh, in the New Testament, uh, maybe other than Paul's and that of Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man, who, uh, in order to get a look at Jesus, climbed a tree. 
By the end of Zacchaeus' story, remember Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was someone who extorted God's people for his own gain, who sold God's people out to the Romans, who collected exorbitant taxes so that he could get rich off of it. And by the end of the story, Zacchaeus is selling his possessions and paying back everyone that he defrauded. And what was it that moved Zacchaeus from conspiring against God's people, from greedily hoarding his possessions, Was it that Jesus said, Zacchaeus, stop it? Zacchaeus, I know what you're up to, and if you don't stop it, God's going to get you? No, what does he say? He says, Zacchaeus, come down. We're going to have a meal at your house. He invites him into a meal. He invites him to a table. He invites him to share and break bread and to live life together. And the invitation into Jesus' life, the invitation into a relationship, Zacchaeus says, whatever you want. I'm going to give back my possessions. I'm going to make my life right. It's God's kindness. It's his love. It's his mercy in the face of Jesus that leads us to real change. So Paul receives a new vision of God, and we have to as well. And then he receives a new vision of his sin. He comes to see his sin in a new light uh, that we need to learn to see our sin uh, as deeply. You know, most of us, when we think of our sin, we tend to think about the things that we do wrong, right? We tend to think about uh, the cuss words that we say. We tend to think about the addictions that we cherish. We tend to think about the times we lose our temper, the websites that we visit, uh, the times we do things too much and to excess, right? We tend to think of our sin at a very behavioral level. But notice what Paul says about his life, that if you measured sin in that way, then Paul would really have very little to repent of. He says that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age. In regards to God's law, he was without fault, he tells us. Right? That he was doing all of the things that he was supposed to be doing and that everything on the outside was going just fine. He was, as he says, advancing. But he comes to see that sin is more than just the bad things that we do. It's the trajectory of our lives that is oriented in the wrong direction. Right, Proverbs tells us that the heart is the wellspring of life and that out of the heart overflows. Out of our heart comes our lives. And so that sin is that direction of your life that flows from your heart that left to itself will take you in the wrong direction. And Paul tells us that you can even be advanced, you can be going great in that direction. You can be climbing the ladder, you can be near the top of the ladder. But if it's the wrong ladder, it doesn't matter if you get to the top of it. Right, If it's the wrong mountain and you climb it and you get to the summit and you look around, you're still lost. Right, So what Paul opens us to is the idea that uh, the shape that sin takes in your life may not feel to you like failure. It may actually feel to you like success. It may feel to you like that part of your life that's going better than any other part. Whatever ladder it is that you're climbing, whether it be the corporate ladder getting ahead in your work, the moral ladder, getting ahead in your religion, right? Some of us want to climb the marriage and family ladder, kind of moving on to the next stage, getting the marriage that we think we have to have, raising the perfect family, thinking that that ladder as we climb it is going to be the thing that sets us apart, right? But human beings are ladder climbers. We figure out what matters most to us, and we try to figure out how to get ahead at it. And it took Jesus knocking Paul off of his ladder, It took him getting knocked down onto his back to realize, hey, I might be really good at Judaism, and it doesn't matter. 
It does not matter. I might be very good at morality. I might feel good about myself and my community might be cheering me on. I might be so zealous about my tradition and my own goodness uh, that everybody's clapping while I'm going down an utterly wrong path, bent on my own self-preservation, my own self-salvation. And this, friends, is where uh, Paul's story is really embarrassingly similar to my own. Uh, I can't say, I was, uh, I can say like Paul. Paul said he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age. I can say that there was a point in my life where I was advancing in Christianity and in, in, in being in the church beyond many my own age. I was named president of my youth group. Wow. Put, yeah, put that on your college application. It's... Uh, <laughs> It's, it, was, it was quite, a, uh, quite an accomplishment. Um, I was known among my group of friends as the one who, when the, when the beer broke out at the party, I said, oh, I'm going home. Right? I was advancing in the traditions of my forefathers beyond many my own age. I remember uh, once I was asked, I got involved, uh, and really it's uh, a huge part of what God used to save my soul in the midst of that. Um, because I was, everything on the outside was looking right. I had the accolades of my youth pastors and my teachers and everyone around me, my parents. Everything on the outside looked right. And yet God knew that I needed my soul saved. That I was doing well down a road that was leading me so far from him. And I'll never forget, I was uh, invited, I, I got involved by God's grace in a ministry called Young Life. And I was asked uh, to give my testimony at an all-area gathering of Young Life. They thought, here's a Christian kid. Surely he has a story that will be, you know, winsome and will help people understand the gospel. And I stood up. I've told this, I've told this story before, but I stood up uh, to give my testimony. And I absolutely lied about it. I made it up. Uh, I didn't think that I had a story. You, you know what's expected of you when you're asked to give your testimony. Right? Oh, I was lost. I was, I was lost in my drinking and in my drugs, and I, had, I was without hope. And then God shined his light, and he saved me. And I knew that was what was expected of me. And so I, I, I didn't make up a whole story. Like, I didn't, you know, uh, totally fabricate it, but I made it just bad enough. I exaggerated the bad parts, and I exaggerated the good parts in order to just make a better story. Because what was true about me in that moment was that I was the kind of kid who could see sin in everybody else's life. I could see how other people needed a savior. I could see how those people who were, who were doing the wrong things, who weren't president of the youth group, I could see how they needed Jesus, but I could not see how I needed him. I was enough of a hypocrite that I could stand up in front of a group of hundreds of people and lie about Jesus and lie about his work in my life, and I couldn't see the hypocrisy and the self-righteousness in that. I couldn't see that that too was a person who was pathetic and desperately in need of God's grace. Who was desperately in need of saving. Not just from my badness, not just from my lying, not just from my hypocrisy, but even from my wrongly motivated efforts to be good. Even from my wrongly motivated uh, search for righteousness on my own. And so Paul had to come to a deeper view of sin, right? That sin isn't just that little bits of our bad hearts that pop up above the waterline, 
like, like an iceberg that has most, you know, most of an iceberg is hidden beneath the surface, right? Most of an iceberg uh, is, is, we can't see it, right? We only see the part that breaks the surface. Most of our lives, most of our repentance is just for where our sin breaks the surface. I'm sorry I got caught, right? I'm sorry you saw my sin. I'm sorry I lost my temper. I'm sorry that I lied. I'm sorry that I did that. But what Jesus asks us to do is to own the underneath the waterline stuff, our pride and our anger and our self-righteousness and our lust and our greed, right? We hate it when somebody else sees our sin, don't we? When somebody catches us doing wrong. And if you're anything like me, you get very, very defensive about it. There is no sin too small for me to get defensive about it, right? I get defensive uh, if somebody, you know, I mean, you name it. Dave, you, you hurt my feelings. Well, yeah, you, you, you're awfully sensitive, right? Or I'm sorry if you took it that way, right? But I was just trying to say. But a true view of our sin says, oh, I'm so sorry. And you know what the truth is? You have no idea. You have no idea how bad it is. I'm sorry that my anger hurt you, but you have no idea how angry a man I really am. It admits what's underneath the surface. So it calls us to new, a new vision of our sin. And then it calls us to a new vision. God calls us to a new vision of his grace. I love verse 15. I'm not sure there's a more poignant uh, encapsulation of the gospel than verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, Look at what Paul does here when he comes to telling his story. He leaves none of the credit for himself. He says, this is the God who knew me before I was born, who called me by his grace, and then who revealed his son to me. But before he revealed his son to me, before I believed in him, before my life was turned around, he had already known me and called me and pursued me. Right? That God was for Paul when Paul was still very much against God. While Paul was out murdering Jesus' followers, Jesus was pursuing Paul. And when Paul gets to this moment, when he tells his story, he saves none of the glory for himself. Paul's story is not, you know what, I was doing that. But then I, I started reading the Bible and I studied and I learned and I saw the error of my ways. And I, was, I came to a better truth and I changed my trajectory. No, he says, when I was still doing the exact wrong thing, when my life trajectory was still going away from God, the God who knew me, who called me, who pursued me, was still after me. And he revealed his son to me to finally save me. You know, friends, this is not, this, this is touching on uh, the doctrine of election, right? Which is the notion that God moves towards us in grace, that God chooses us, that he grabs us, that he loves us irrespective of our choosing him. And this is, a, this is an idea that is really hard for many of us to come to terms with because it doesn't feel that way to us at first, right? Most of us, I can speak certainly even, even for myself, when I, when I came to faith, it felt like my own choosing, right? It felt like I finally gave up my attempt to run away from God. I finally gave in to God's love. I was finally persuaded in my mind and then my heart moved towards God. And there's places where the scriptures describe our coming to faith that way, aren't there? 
There's places where it says, uh, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is absolutely 100% true, right? That, that, that as it comes to each one of us, as the free offer of God's grace comes to us, that all that's required for us is to simply believe. It's to say, God, I'm sorry, I've been pursuing life on my own, and I'm, I let go of that. I repent, and I receive you in faith. I need your cross, I need your life. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then what often happens to us, I know this is the case for me, as I look back on my life, as I look back on my conversion, it starts to look like it had a whole lot less to do with my own thoughts, with my own decision, with my own, uh, with my own brilliance. Right? I can start to see God's hand in my life pursuing me when I was arrogant, when I was selfish, when I was what Paul calls here, God, what he calls in Romans, an enemy of God. Somebody has once said that salvation, if you can think of your salvation as like a door, that as you enter the door, over the door, you see written, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so in faith, you walk through the door. But then you turn back and you look, and on the other side of the door, you see written that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Right? That you come to see that God's hand has been in your life. It's, that is, as Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord, that it belongs 100% to God, that there's nothing, nothing at all that we bring to our salvation except for our own sin, except for our own need, that we're entirely dependent on God's grace and his grace alone. If you don't think that's true, look at what Paul brought to the table. Paul is not somebody who would have been your first-round draft pick of converts to Jesus, uh, right? He was the kind of guy that when he started showing up at churches saying, hey, I'd like to come to church, uh, they locked the doors because they knew about the stories of the last time Paul came to church uh, when he was involved in arresting and executing uh, their friends and fellow church members, right? That God worked in Paul's life not because of his goodness, but precisely because of what Paul calls here his violent opposition. So that when Paul was converted, when Paul's life was changed, people would look at Paul's life and say, hey, if Paul is here, if Paul is involved in the church, then it can only be because of the reality of the resurrection. It can only be because he had an encounter with the grace of God. It can only be owing to God's grace. So we need a fresh vision of God's grace, a vision of all that God offers that we simply bring to him our empty hands, our sinful lives, and that he is the one who does all of the work, all of the choosing, all of the loving. So we gain a new vision of our sin, a new vision of, our, of his grace, and then finally we get a new vision of his purpose for our lives. Look at the way Paul sums, uh, finishes up that great sentence. I'll read it again. When he had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. You know, when it comes to that idea of election, of God's sovereign grace, what we like to do about it uh, is we, the, the question we like to ask is why. And the reason we ask a why question, we, we usually ask a backward looking why question. Right? Why did God choose? Why God, cho why God chose Israel and not the Canaanites? Why God chose the church and not their neighbors? 
right? We, we look backwards into eternity and ask why. But most of the time in the scriptures, uh, one, God doesn't seem particularly interested in answering that question, right? He doesn't seem uh, to feel the need to explain to us the mysterious workings of his will. But the why that God always leads us to ask in regards to his salvation is a forward-looking question of why. Right, Paul said, he chose me in, in him, revealed his son to me, so that going forward, I might preach his gospel to the nations. Right, that, that God's grace is always so that we can be his witnesses in the world. Right, Israel wasn't chosen and beloved by God so that they could hoard it to themselves, worship him, and just, you know, say good luck to their neighbors. They were called to be God's people so that they could live their life with him and be what? Be a light to the nations, right? So that their neighbors, so that the nations around them would stream into God's temple to worship him, right? There was always the so that they would be his witnesses, right? When Jesus is resurrected and he pours out his spirit on his disciples, it's not, hey, good news, guys, here's the Holy Spirit. Y'all go live up in the upper room and just feel good together about it. Talk to each other about how great the Holy Ghost is. No, it was so that you would be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? God's grace is always a calling to responsibility. It's a calling to a vocation of love for our neighbors. It's a calling to a vocation of sharing his grace far and wide. It's not uh, Jack Miller, one of my great... Uh, theological mentors and heroes, said it this way, grace is not a coin for you to spend on yourself, right? It's not something for you just to receive and just feel warm and fuzzy about. It comforts us. It is a gift of God's love and his goodness. But God's grace is given to you so that it would flow through you towards your coworkers, towards your children, towards your neighbors, towards your friends, towards your enemies. It's a so that kind of grace. Look at the way that Paul ends in verse 24. So God's grace comes into his life. He talks to us about how he goes not, not immediately to be with anyone, but he goes into hiding for a bit. Then he comes to Jerusalem. He tells his story to the disciples. Verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because of me. This is a new purpose for our lives. The, the confession, the catechism uh, that our church uses as a statement of faith begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? Right? What is the, the purpose of men and women and children? Why did God make us? And the answer is that you may glorify God and enjoy him forever. That the reason you are on this earth is to enjoy God his grace and his goodness and his love for you, you were made to enjoy a relationship with God and that you would glorify him, that you would give him all of the glory and worship and honor and that you would work to spread his glory around the world until it covers the earth as the oceans cover the sea. We were made to live for God's glory. And so when Paul says that they glorified God because of him, he's saying that his life reached the fullness of what he was made to do. That he shared his story in such a way that God received all of the glory. And friends, this is the thread that runs throughout Paul's life. 
when he tells his story and says that his message is not one. It's not man's gospel. It's not one that he received from any man. When he says that his sin was taking him the wrong direction, when he says that God's grace chose him before the foundation of the earth, all of that is him telling his story in such a way that God gets all of the glory. Man-made religion tends to result in men's glory, right? A religion that's principally about your own goodness, your own moral purity, your own abilities, your own righteousness. There's room in that kind of religion for your own glory, for you to say, aren't I just a little bit better? Aren't I a little bit better than my selfish brother or sister? Aren't I a little bit better than my neighbor? Aren't I a little bit better than Linda and HR? Right, but the, the grace of the gospel leads us to see our stories in such a way that there is no room for our glory because all we bring is our sin. It takes a level of courage and humility to come to narrate your life, to come to tell your story in such a way that you don't get to be the hero, right? In such a way that it doesn't leave your friends and your neighbors impressed with you, but in such a way that you're willing to be transparent with who you are, not bragging about your sin or how bad you are, but telling your story honestly so that you can point honestly to the God who gives all of the grace and all of the love to sinners like us so that we can live for his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do want our lives to result in your glory. We want our lives uh, to lead not to our own, patting ourselves on the back, our own feeling good about ourselves. But Lord, we want our lives to, to show forth and to show out your glory. Lord, each one of us is somewhere on this journey of conversion. We're somewhere, uh, Lord, uh, in need of seeing with fresh eyes your glory and our sin and your grace and our purpose. And so, Lord, I do pray that you would keep going in your transforming work in our hearts, that you would truly and deeply convert us. And we know that we don't get to be perfect in this life. We know that that work doesn't get finished in this life. But Lord, we pray that you would turn us more and more away from ourselves and towards you. You would convert us and move us from being greedy people to generous people, from being lustful people to being loving people, from being self-righteous people to being humble people, from being prideful and angry people to being humble and serving people. Lord Jesus, change us. We're desperately in need of your converting work in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.